introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome into another episode. This one is going to be near and dear to my heart. You know, most of these episodes that I do, I have to research them. I just get curious about a topic and I go and research it and present it. This one, this is my bread and butter. This is the kind of stuff that I know. And my guest today, you're going to absolutely love. He is an expert in the field. Uh, his name is Mark Harold. He was featured on CNN. He's been a contributor to Fox News, Court TV. He's written his own book. He was a, a law professor at Ole Miss. So he is well-traveled. He's a great guest. Today's episode is about Spectre, basically the plot line of Nine Eyes. And it's based on a real-life information sharing program between nations. It the, the plot is criticized a lot because there's low stakes. And I think that of all the Bond movies, really this is the lowest stakes. The idea is that the government has this really in-depth information sharing and they can get all this information, they get into your privacy, they know everything that's going on. And they want this information sharing from all nations and then the government will then have an insider who will then give it to Spectre, a private organization. What I want to discuss today and kind of the idea that I want to explore with this episode today is Spectre talks about how it's bad that the government share each other, that the government has the information. And I'd like to try to make the argument that right now, private corporations and big tech and all that have far more information than the government could ever have. So if I was making a Bond 26, and the first three episodes of this year have been The Merchant of Death, they've been Crypto, and they've been now this Nine Eyes program. I think that's kind of the perfect setting for who the next Bond villain should be or next plot line should be is that you've got someone who can have all this access to this vast amount of metadata. You know, whenever you click agree to terms or agree to service, there's a you would not believe how much stuff you're agreeing to and how much is accumulated and you become a product. And in Spectre, it's, they don't really ever explore what they do with the information. Okay, you have the information, what do you do with it? And I think that it could be interesting to explore this and hear me out here. If you don't pay for an app, you are the product. That means that you are usually assigned an ID number, whether it's from the sensor vault for Google or there's other fog reveal, there's some other ones. You become an ID and what this ID number tells you and what these corporations and what these businesses want to know is that everything that you click on, what do you like, what interests you, when do you stop scrolling, what type of news articles are you looking at? Where is your location? When do you listen to things? What type of music do you listen to? What do you do? Where do you shop? What do you look for? It's also listening into the things you're saying. They're looking for keywords. They're constantly looking for all this metadata about you and that puts you into an ID number that can both be predictive of what you like, what you'll buy, so if, and also your interests so that you can be advertised to and you become a very efficient product for somebody to sell to. Your ID number, you're, you're, you're anonymized, you are just nothing more than ID number, you are a battery, you are something for them to sell to. With AI and all the, and all the advancements in, in artificial intelligence, now not only do we have the collection of all this metadata, now we have this artificial intelligence that can actually interpret the data. And all this, you know, trillions and billions and Googleplex worth of stuff that's now there, they can analyze this and be very precise with it. One of the things that, one of the books that really changed my life and my, my view on things was Thomas Sewell's Conflict of Visions. What Thomas Sewell talks about in Conflict of Visions is that 
Why do we see so many of the familiar faces on the same aisles about topics that are seemingly completely different? So if I tell you my view on one issue, you can pretty much predict what my view is on seemingly unrelated issues just because of this one issue. And why I think this is important is because if you have this metadata and you have this AI and you have this technology to understand or put people in numbers, not put them as people, just numbers, figure them out, figure what they like, what they dislike, what they do. You also can tailor how to predict, you can also predict their future intent. You can predict what they'll like. You can predict how they want, how they will respond to being fed different things. Now, tinfoil hat, nefarious, Bond villain. If I've got this information and I have this ability to do this, if I am willing to sell this to the highest bidder, not irregardless of viewpoint, anything like that, if you just pay me enough, I'll influence people no matter what you are. Pavlov did, you know, he's the one that did the dog with the salivating dog. He also did a number of, of um, studies based on how predictive or how influenced people could be or how easily influenced or manipulated they could be. And, and what he found is, you know, 15 to 20% of the people are, they're, they'll believe anything. They'll, you tell them to jump, they'll say how high. There's another 20% that are independent thinkers and kind of will question things and they'll be troublesome for these people. And the fight for all of this is then that middle ground, that 60%. All, all politics, all thought, all these realms are all really fighting for that 60%. And if I'm a Bond villain and I have access to this data and now I have this entire artificial intelligence to interpret that data, now if I sell it to the person, let's say it's let's say for instance it's big pharma or it's a nation or they want to promote a war they want to promote whatever they have or i've got an election coming up or you just you know silva kind of talked this talked about this in skyfall when he said you know manipulating an election in uganda boop, easy done if you have the ability to collect this and predict people then you can really influence that 60 percent people especially because most people get their feed and they get that endorphin rush and it's a bumper sticker it's stimulate move on stimulate move on not a lot of in-depth analysis so if i'm a bond villain and i'm willing to send sell these things maybe you don't even notice how influenced you're being and i think they're kind of seeing that with people that are becoming so entrenched in their camps about whatever their thought is um, i've got a couple of followers that think that I'm one way and then another ones that think that I'm another way and they'll send me stuff and it's interesting to see the things that I don't see on my feed you know I see one part of the extreme part of one side and you're like oh my god no wonder that side hates you and then I see the other extreme part of the other side like oh my god no wonder no wonder there's this conflict because you're not seeing the extremes of the other ones because I know my feed is very tailored you know I'm a simple being it's a lot of uh, you know, Bond stuff and hot girls. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not a complex creature to figure out. Instagram got me pretty easy. Um, but I, I think it is interesting to see different things and how they predict and how people are getting fed things that they find appealing or pleasing or they agree with. And it further cements their opinions so that they think that they're the absolute truth. And I think that that's a real manipulation of the data that they have and the privacy that they have. And we're kind of going to go to... We're going to talk about what the, both the government can do, different means that they have, and then we're going to kind of talk about the private side. And if you're a Bond villain and you're doing these types of things, what you could do, what the capabilities of some of this stuff is. And this idea of a sphere of influence for sale or manipulation, 
by entities made me think about Dwight Eisenhower's farewell speech in 1961 after he left office. Dwight Eisenhower was president, but before that he was a World War II general. He was pretty much an American hero, probably our last general, last military guy to actually become president. And people thought that when he went out, he was going to be rah-rah military, but he actually, in his farewell speech, took time to warn the American people about the conflicting spheres of influence that the nation was probably going to have, whether it be in technology, science, or the military-industrial complex. And I just want to read you an excerpt of his farewell speech. It was only 10 minutes long, but it was kind of poignant when you read about it in 1961 and compare it to today. So here's just an excerpt. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armament industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armament industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and large arms industry is the new American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for this disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for sweeping change in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during the recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also became more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists and laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, the government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. And I just wanted to read that, and when you, when you read it again, he doesn't come out and really say it, but he's really talking about this, is that when you monetize everything, when everything is for sale, and, and 
so much money is involved, whether it be military, science, all these grants, all this stuff. It is important to gain, to gain influence, to gain spheres of influence, to gain public opinion. And it is so important, and I think that's why it makes it for a great Bond story, that if you can manipulate people, if you can buy these spheres of influence, if you can just even move the needle a little bit, either way, just so that your part can be sold, be bought, and then you get these big grants, or you get this motivation, or you get all these things that can be done, um, it really it, it lends itself to an interesting thought about where things could be. It's an interesting topic. It's a fun one. I think you guys will really enjoy this. So without further ado, let's kind of get into Nine Eyes, the Spectre story. Are we in Spectre already? First thing I want to talk about is something called a geofence warrant. What a geofence warrant is, is Google is constantly tracking you. Every two minutes, they track your location. Now, this is regardless of whatever you have. If you have a single Google app on your phone, you've agreed to a term of service, and they are going to take as much information as they possibly can, especially Google Maps, but it's any Google Geo. There's Gmail, Google Maps, or whether you have an Android phone, Google is constantly extracting information from you. And they put it in something called a sensor vault. A sensor vault uh, attaches a anonymized ID to you, to your Gmail account. From the sensor vault, everything that Google collects about you goes into the sensor vault. From the sensor vault, it attaches to the ID. From the ID, they can tell and predict and tell you how much advertising, what they can send their profile, they can sell it, they can tailor advertising, whatever they want to do with this, however they see fit, however they can monetize, whatever they want to do with this. Once you're in the sensor vault, once you've got this ID, they can have this. The way that the government can get access to this Google sensor vault is they have to have one, a target location. So there was a recent uh, decision in the DC circuit court about using a geofence warrant to collect people from the January 6th Capitol building uh, storming. And the way that the government did it is first, the target location was inside the Capitol building. They wanted to know every Google account, every phone with a Gmail or a sensor ID that was inside the Capitol building at the time. Then they asked, requested both the um, two hours before and two hours after the events of January 6th, wherever those phones were. And so that they would have a control set of sensor IDs and a target set. Once they would eliminate all the sensor IDs that were not supposed to be there inside the Capitol building, then they could get another warrant to de-anonymize those phones that are in there. And they could get the IDs based on your phone, get the ID, get your name and who you are and why you were in that Capitol building. And then from there, they would make arrests based on that. Just give you an idea of how the government can use the private uh, Google access, but it also shows the limited amount of government. <laughs> there are many, 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 many steps that the government has to take 
in order to acquire something that you have agreed to give away to Google. Google has far, far more access to this metadata than the government ever could because of the Fourth Amendment, because of all the protections that are afforded citizens from the predations of the Yugos government. But if you agree to it, if you tell a private private company, you can track all this stuff. Go ahead. I just click Terms of Service. I don't even read it and go ahead. It is a far different scenario than it is for the government. Google doesn't really care who you are. I, I think that's a, an important thing with this privacy issue or this idea of what privacy is, is that you know, at this point, Google doesn't care who you are. They care what the idea is, what the thing is. If they can get a mosaic picture of who you are and who you react to, where you are, where you travel, they can target your, their advertising and they can become very efficient in that. And that's what is so you know, valuable of resource, you know, this metadata that they're taking. So that's what a geofence warrant does. And it's just a glimpse about all the vast amount of information that Google is constantly taking from you. And you don't have to have a Google phone. If you download a single app, they are taking that information from you, especially, you know, you look at it from a privacy standard. Maybe I don't want to be put into a sensor vault and just have my entire life in this and say, all right, this is the type of person this person is. This is how we advertise to them. Go. At some point, I also use Google Maps a ton. And a really nice feature about Google Maps is traffic conditions too. Hey, there's there's traffic ahead, red area. Everyone's seen the little red spot and like, oh my God, my trip's ruined now. Uh, here's an alternative route. We can save you five minutes. Would you like to accept? You know, this is very useful tools that makes life more efficient. So it's a given a balance. But I think the interesting point is that for, I guess we'll talk towards this at the end too, but you agree to this stuff. Part of the terms of service is that you agree to it. You download the app, you agree to the service, they allow you to do all these things. And there's been a lot of talk about TikTok, how invasive they are. And this idea, if the government came to you and said, hey, we're gonna put, I want you to put this thing on you. I want you to hold, hold it at all times. Put it in your pocket, use it four to five hours a day. Um, and I want, I want to know everything about you. I want to know all your history. I want to know what you Google. I want to know what pictures you like. I want to know what's on your phone. I want to know your contacts. I want to know everything about you. If I do this, can you just sign this, agree to this, and here's the thing? Of course you wouldn't say You would say no. Some cop came up to your door and said, hey, I, I really want to do this. I really want you to uh, hold this thing for all day, every day, and it's going to tell me everything about you, and I'm just going to take that information, and I'll, I'll use it how I see fit. I would be very shocked if there were more than you know, 2% of the population said, yeah, okay, no, no, absolutely not. But we do this on the regular with these, these apps, and the Geofence and the Google is one of the other spot. Another cool technology that they have is something called a shot spotter. Shot spotter is interesting in that it tri triangulates shots throughout the, the city. They, they have these sensors put all the way through the city, and when gunshots go off, they can actually triangulate based on the reverberation of the sound and then they'll record it, and then someone gets sent almost instantaneously to someone, they'll review it one more time, hear if it's gunshots, and then they'll send it out, and then the police get alert that, hey, at this location, this many gunshots were found, you get to actually hear the recording, and you get to go from that. But it's kind of a cool technology in that the sensors are so precise, and they can just read the reverberation. It's, it's insane. Next thing is facial recognition, which I find very interesting in many ways. Because if, when you're walking through a mall or you're walking through the airport, maybe not the airport, but, you know, if you're walking through your daily life, you don't expect that your face is now a commodity. And I think one of the reasons that 
the your iPhones went from thumb first pass codes to then thumb to facial recognition is because facial recognition is much more valuable. And here's what you know, if I was if I was trying to monetize this facial recognition software, I would sell it in this way. I capture all of this facial recognition, right? What, what can you do with a thumbprint, right? I mean, you, can you monetize that information, that data? Not really, unless you actually have a physical touch. But in today's age, you can do facial recognition software. It's going to be very precise. If they can walk through um, a train station or an airport or malls or streets, and they can pick up your face and then recognize who you are, that's a valuable source for law enforcement. Now, if I am a private company and now I'm making billions of people give me their face, right? Part of your service, if you want to unlock your phone, you got to use the face. Now I have this data. Now I have this information. Let's say I put it in another sensor vault where it's anonymized. And then I sell this software to the government that says, hey, if you buy this software in a monitor and if you ever need to find somebody, you can come to us, subpoena us, and then we'll give you their information. But you got to buy this system first. Think of the billions and billions of dollars you could make off of this software. Even casinos, casinos do this exact same thing. Casinos use facial recognition software as private companies using this to make sure that bad you know, bettors or cheaters or something don't come into the casinos. That's an invaluable tool. It's a way to monetize it. And how do you do it? Create a terms of service, you collect the data, and now your face is a commodity, something that you would almost never think of beforehand. But now your face is a commodity. I think it's a very interesting um, way. And that's if I was going to sell it, that's exactly how I would sell it. I would sell it as, look, we have the information. It'll be digitally plot. Hey, any officer can put the, these data points into the software, find your person. An hour later, no matter where they are, we'll find them. Uh, it's just invaluable tool. Drones are another thing. Drones are a really interesting thing because of their precision. It's insane what they can do from miles up in the air. You can uh, talk about this a little later, but in Baltimore, they had a pilot program. And the way it would work was three drones were in the air at all times. And while the three, three drones are in the air at all times, they're constantly videotaping the city. Constantly. Every street, everything. They have the technology to put this blanket um, video surveillance over. And then let's say somebody gets shot. Let's say a 2200 block of East Monument Street. Shots, shots go off. You get to see it. All right. Go up. You, you file a request with the drone operators, the drone people. They can actually take the video from that time. And they will be able to trace anybody leaving that scene. Let's say there's a car. It's a drive-by. They shoot them. They can actually follow and it has all video recording that car going throughout the entire city. And as long as they stay in the city, you can find out the exact address they went into and you know what type of car they were, where they are. And you can go and get officers to go hold the car, get a search warrant, get a search warrant for the house, and close murders. Invaluable tool. It was unreal how effective this was. But the ACLU came in and shut it down. And it's all it was all paid for by the feds. It was all federally funded. It was a, it was a pilot program. And it just sat there, a whole bunch of people lost a whole lot of money, uh, well, the government lost money buying this program because it sat for two years, the ACLU stopped, and then the city didn't want to deal with it, and they called it a spy plan, and they kind of overarched what they actually were. And I get what the point is, it's this constant, this constant battle of privacy, this idea of privacy, and I think the idea of privacy is changing, it's changing greatly over the last, even the last 50 years, let alone the last couple hundred years. 
so where do you balance? Because it really was an invaluable tool. And as far as a law enforcement resource, it was, it was incredible. And it's sad to see it gone. But do we want to live a life knowing that Big Brother is flying three drones and we hope that there's never used for nefarious purposes? I get, I get both sides of it. Um, and then there's something, again, called a uh, cell site stingray kind of thing. It's, it's uh, this equipment that you can have. It can actually tell you right where yourself. If you get the cell phone or the, uh, the cell phone that they're using or the IME, you can tell exactly where that person is. Whether in their eight-story building, you can find out the exact door that they're, they're staying in with this technology. It's really incredible stuff. It works a lot when somebody has a warrant. We can find you know, right to the door that they are. Incredible technology. And fog, reel, fog reveal is, is another, it's kind of like Sensor Vault. And the way it is, is, this is an advertising ID. It's supposed to be anonymous. And these ID associates are have amazing amounts of data throughout your phone. These data are converted into pattern of, of life analysis. And this is everything about you, what you like. There are apps that will actually look at how long your eyes are trained on a particular picture. So that they know not only that you've stopped scrolling at this part, what part about this picture, what part about this screen is actually interesting to you. And they have all this data that tells exactly what types of things you're interested in, what can catch your eye. And I want to just stress for my idea where Spectre really lost its light or where they lost an opportunity, where they hope they go forward with the next film, is that this in my tinfoil hat, you know, conspiracy, Bond villain way, can truly be used for nefarious purposes. You can influence everything, whether it's, you know, hey, we want, hey, we're trying to get this, uh, we're trying to get support for this war. We want this part focused, this part amplified, the bandwidth on this point of view really done down. And if you can manipulate this and here's another way just to kind of creatively do it is you take one side and you know that they're really susceptible to fear so you just give them the scariest stuff oh my god look what's happening bad 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 support this will save you you've got them you've got them in the camp then you've got the other side which is thinks that oh no no way this could never happen and then you feed them some things on the other side but you also feed them lies and know that they're so anxious to post these things or create these things that they will repost these lies and especially on the social media now you've got the misinformation we can oh you said this it's not true now we can deplatform you also you can make the other one other side look like crazy people like liars like they are the bad people so now you've got the 60% thinking that the 20% that's scared are probably too much but we're like oh those guys are completely wrong also so all you need to do is is get the waivers on those 60%. You could do this about any issue ever. Um, so I think if I was writing Bond 26, that's exactly what I would do. I would create somebody who has a tech bro, like the crypto guy, like a Sam Bankman-Fried kind of odd, weird guy. Treat him like Victor Boot from uh, Merchant of Death, right? He'll sell it to anybody. I don't have an allegiance. I don't care what your point of view is. I don't really care about anything other than you. I'm trying to make money. I'm trying to build this as a as a criminal enterprise i'm trying to build money i'm trying to sell these things and whatever you want to use it for you just tell me and you buy you pay me enough and i'll influence whatever you want so i think i've i think i've talked enough now let's bring on our guest named mark harold 
He's a DC-based attorney for a federal agency. He served as a TV and radio crime and trial analyst on major national and international networks, including CNN, CNN HLN, Fox News, Court TV. He's a former Ole Miss professor, George Mason University adjunct professor, and a city of Atlanta police officer. And now he faces his most daunting task of dealing with being my mentor now. Uh, Welcome in, Mark... Harold. He always runs while others walk. He acts while other men just talk. Hey, Mark. Good to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, today we're talking about the, the plot of Spectre was that it was eventually going to become this Nine Eyes program, which is a big, giant information sharing. And I got to thinking, you know, in today's age, is it more about we worried about the government knowing so much or about the private sector knowing so much and basically downloading you? So, Mark, you're an expert on the Fourth Amendment. Uh, kind of we'll start from the angle. What do you think about pr- what privacy in the Fourth Amendment means in today's world of technology and the ever-expanding data mining that they have? Well, I think a couple of things. Uh, for one thing, most of what we're seeing and most of what's being the privacy implications come from the surveillance. You know, not as much from search warrants, uh, arrest and, and search warrants, but from the surveillance. And Surveillance, you know, really isn't in the Fourth Amendment. It isn't in the Constitution. It says search and seizure. So our law, and I'm not going to get too wonky, but our laws basically are trying to pigeonhole judging the reasonableness of surveillance into search. And, you know, it's kind of a hard fit. It's absolutely, in most cases, it's not the single collection of data. If we're talking about someone in public, what we'd say surveillance, whether that's license plate reader, facial recognition, it's not the collection of the data one time that's troubling. What most folks are concerned about, both for the government and the commercial databases, is when that uh, information is put into you know, some sort of aggregate or data mining situation, and you can draw a lot of conclusions about people's lives based on all the information together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the mosaic part, right? I mean, what we even talk about what Google does. Google turns you into a number, and they mine everything they have, and they kind of get an idea of what you have. And... How comfortable are you with the idea? I think we were pretty set on the government's intrusion, right? I mean, I think most people have a, a, an understanding that we're not really want the government to know too much about this, but there is a need and there is a useful means of law enforcement to have this information. What is, we'll just stay on the government for now. What do you think the distinction is and what is this idea of privacy? Because when, when the Fourth Amendment was first made, it's that soldiers can't come into your home, right? Very simple. There's not much in it. It's physical intrusion. Now what we have is what you're talking about with the surveillance, with the facial recognition, with the data mining, with all the things. You are becoming very much a commodity in, in your information and what you download. Your identity isn't as much important, but what everything about you is. How much are you willing to have like the government in there? Or, or do you think they should have high parameters of when the government can get access to this data? You know, I, I think there should be higher parameters when we're talking about the government. 
you know, one step would be, and it seems radical, but would just be to expand the Fourth Amendment protections to surveillance. Now, I'm not 100 percent sure how you amend an amendment, <laughs> but, um, you know, it could be search, seizure and surveillance could all be held to a reasonableness standard and have some type of warrant requirement unless there's some exception like you know, exigency or consent or something. Um, you know, there's a couple different kinds of information that we give when we're talking about the government. And when we talk about being out in public, like your license plate, well, a li like license plate reader is a good example. Most people wouldn't say it's problematic for a police officer to see a license plate and run that license plate, usually if there's some reason. They think the car might be stolen or they think the car might be have been used in some sort of criminal activity. The police officer in their laptop in their car runs the license plates and gets the information. Most people don't have a major problem with that, right? There's, it's some sort of, it's kind of particularized, it's specific to that car, and there's a resource limitation in that the cop cannot run every license plate in a parking lot, for instance. Mm. But the license plate reader becomes problematic in, I think, most people's eyes when the license plate readers set all over a city or a town that information can be aggregated and it can track your movements. In other words, it can see that your car was here and then it was here and it can draw the conclusion through an algorithm that the car traveled between those distances given the time frame. And pretty soon, if you have enough license plate readers all over town and you can track it, you can recreate an individual's entire day where they went, uh, you know, did they, what church did they go to? What doctor did they go to? Where, what types of associations are they members of just because of where their cars were parked? And again, you know, it, that mo the FBI always went to mob funerals, right, and wrote down all the license plate numbers. Most people said, well, those cars were in public. No big deal. They can do that. But if you took all that information over time, you'd really be able to collect a lot of data about those folks. And a lot of that information wouldn't be about illegal activity. It'd be about lawful activity. And I think that's really where people start to get a little queasy isn't necessarily in the individual acts of law enforcement, especially if they've been doing it for years. It's, again, when that information is aggregated and put into a database and you can draw broad conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. That's what with the LPR. Did you ever get a chance to check out the uh, what they did with the pilot program with the drones in Baltimore? Did you ever get to hear about that? or I, I did not. So they the way it worked is a pilot program that we had a two-year federal funding for, and these three drones would go up in the air, and they would constantly have... Con constant video surveillance of uh, the city. So let's say a shooting happened. You could go and request the timeline and get all the information and actual video footage of suspects leaving the scene of the crime. You could follow the drones that have video footage of the car. You'd follow all the way up to wherever it went to all throughout the city. And as long as all three drones were up, it literally was videotaping the entire city at all times. Now, while being a detective for the first couple of months that this was implemented, it was an amazing resource for law enforcement. You could see someone get shot, you could see the car, and you could follow the suspect all the way to their house when they went in or the next house that they went into. But, like you said, with the queasy part, it is kind of queasy to feel like, hey, there are these drones that literally are, are videotaping every movement all the time. And it's, you know, I t I, I, the first time I started walking through D.C. going to work, I was amazed at how every corner has a CCT camera. No sidewalk, everything is under constant surveillance. And there is that in the cities. But is that just one, the next logical step to have drones constantly videotaping over air? Because is there a Fourth Amendment part of just videotaping? Or is this the next logical well, step? Or where do we go from here? 
Well, as you said, you know, it can be helpful. It's one of those things that if you have the capability um, and a certain event happens and it gets turned on, you know, it, it is great information to have. Leaving it up there all the time and recording data and then being able to, you know, warehouse that data and access it later. One of the things that's really is kind of a, a tension in the sort of brick and mortar Fourth Amendment law, search and seizure law and, and the technology is you know, something early like a GPS device, you could slap a GPS device on a vehicle, right? And you could track it around. Um, you know, the police or the government's position was, well, you know, all that does is it allows us to do something through technology in a much more efficient fashion, right? Because we could follow that person around all the time if we wanted to. Hmm. And that's true. The police can follow you when you're in public pretty much all the time. They don't need a warrant to do that. You're out. Now, obviously, at some point, I guess it could become harassment. But what the police said is, look, it's just making something we can already do more efficient. What's wrong with that? How does that implicate any different privacy interests between following someone around 24-7 and slapping the device on their car and monitoring it from, you know, from a, a computer screen somewhere? Part of the difference with the drones and what they're doing now is it it does it, it creates a something that humans can't do because it becomes like a bit of a time machine right mm -hmm. you can access that that drone data or those license plate readers or whatever it is facial recognition you can reach back into time and recreate the movements of people in the past and so now technology is doing something not just to make what human beings could do more efficient it's actually acting in a capacity more like artificial intelligence which is expanding and so a lot of times you think People reasonably expect law enforcement can do certain things, and if they suspect them of a crime, follow them around, you know, after the fact. But they can actually, you know, you could find out a bank was robbed and go and, and reach back, you know, a year to see if maybe somebody was casing that bank and see whose cell phone data is there. Hmm. Again, human beings can't do that. You can't get in a time machine and go back. So, again, it's really not the collection of the data in each instance. It's the aggregation of that data that I think is going to be most challenging for the courts and for just people. And you have to remember that a lot of what our protections are under the Fourth Amendment come down to the, you know, the expectation that we have in privacy. And as people become more and more um, accustomed throughout their life to being observed, to being a camera everywhere, kids going to school and having the little chip and they can be tracked around the building and all this – as people get more and more used to being surveilled, they will start to have less of an expectation of privacy that they won't be. And it'll actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy because people grow up being surveilled and pretty soon they say, no, that's just how it is. I don't have any expectation of privacy. I expect there to be a camera on every street corner when I'm in public. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, has your, has your TikTok following exploded or? <laughs> <laughs> No, not so far. <laughs> I still am, I'm still puzzled by TikTok. I can't, I don't know the dances. Oh, yeah. I don't really quite understand how it works. But even that, so we'll kind of transition. And, and I think that if, if this question would be a lot easier if we had absolute institutional trust in things, you would understand that you understand the value of law enforcement and the safety and that of having this information. But I think people, there's a lot of, you know, distrust in institutions. There's a lot of distrust in the government. And in Bond films and in really Hollywood in particular, it was very of the times to make the government the bad guy, right? It was They were the nefarious actor with evil intentions and as it goes. And I, and I think there, I mean, there can be points of that and there are points to that. 
But for the most part, government is kind of inefficient in what they're trying to do. Even if they were trying to be a supervillain, they'd be inefficient at it anyways. Um, but I, I think the more interesting debate is when it comes to privatized, right? You've got Google, you've got, you know, all these, the Twitter or the social media, the Facebook, the Instagram, the TikTok, all this collection. And now you're seeing G, G, GPT come down and AI come down. And what do you, how do you feel about these private actors? I think people are more willing to click that uh, agree to terms button on their phone than they are to say, okay, government search. Where do you see this as it transitions to what privacy and private sector? Well, when we move into the, the private sectors, the private actors, the companies, you know, the database manufacturers that, that then, you know, collect information, you know, Fourth Amendment and the protections of the Fourth Amendment are against governmental intrusions into privacy or property. So when you get into a private company, uh, you know, and just in a brick and mortar sense, when you walk around Walmart, if you steal something and they detain you, it's not really a Fourth Amendment seizure, right? It's mm -hmm. a private company on their property. Until the government's involved, the Fourth Amendment's not implicated. Um, the difference is, and just like in what you said, just when you click through, and of course, it's a crazy world, right? And I'm, I've been a lawyer over 20 years, and I still click, you know, when you're in law school, they tell you don't sign anything you don't read. But how many times do we you know, do that. We, we take a huge 40 page boiler point document and we scroll all the way to the bottom and we hit accept without reading it. Yeah. I mean, that's really, when you think about it, crazy. And we all do it all the time. Did you ever see because that South Park episode in, with the human, no. the human sentai pad? You agreed to this. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, when you think about it, imagine, just think yeah. back to, you know, all the listeners think back of how many times you've agreed to enter into a contract and provide your information willingly without reading that contract. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, and I think it's a great point, if the government showed up at your house and said, here, sign this, and then we're going to take all this information, you would be immediately suspect. You'd be like, well, I don't think the government should have this information. With private companies, it's different. And for you know, many, many years before, really up until about the mid-80s, what you handed over to a third party, the government could, could get without a warrant. Now, there were some statutory protections for health records and financial records, but by and large, if you had a gas bill or you had a power bill, and let's say that the police wanted to find out whether you had a marijuana grow lab, they could go to the power company and get, you know, usually without even a subpoena, get the records from your house. And if two years ago before you moved in, it was using, you know, 50 kilowatts, and now it uses 400, they might be able to get a warrant with that information. Do you have a privacy interest in that in that information? Well, no. The argument is, how can you? It's in the hands of a third party. Other people can see it. It's not private anymore. Now, fast forward to today, how much information is in private hands? All of it, right? I mean, Gmail has my emails. A low-level employee at Gmail could jump in and start reading some of my stuff if they really wanted to, look at the pictures. Mm -hmm. And so now... What we want is we want privacy protections and we want Fourth Amendment protections. But in essence, we've handed all that information over to the third party willingly and even signed a contract in some cases that, the, that they can hand it over to the government if they want to. So um, it, it's really that doctrine that if you shared something with a third party, it had limited protections doesn't work as well when you think about the fact that almost everything you have or a lot of it is in the hands of third parties. You've given it over to ISP, you've given it to Gmail or, or Yahoo or whoever has it. Uh, an amazing amount of information. I honestly don't know with Zoom or Skype 
when I agreed to the terms of service, I have to admit, I don't know whether they're allowed to, to keep what we what we do. I don't know if they're allowed to keep a copy. My guess is bandwidth keeps them from doing so, but I have no idea what I signed over uh, when I did Skype or Zoom or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a crazy world with this, but most of, you know, I, we willingly hand over enough information that if you found somebody's cell phone and it was unlocked, you could probably recreate most of their life or a good part of it and find out a lot about them based on just what's in that small device. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the way that social media it makes money is that they download they download you. And I, you know what's an interesting, and we talk about how reluctant you would be to give the government control, but how willing people are to give these private corporations or private entities access to vast amount of their personal life, something that you would find... You know, if, if somebody said, come to your house and said, hey, I want to know your search history. And they came in and said, "Look, I want to look through your phone. You'd be like, no, you can't do that. Or if they said, hey, I want to see the apps you do. Or, hey, I want to look through all your pictures on your phone. You'd be like, no. But the fact that you, it's almost an impersonal vet is someone far away now has these things. It makes people more accepting of having it. And it, it's like... At what point do you do you ha- ha- they, they accept that there could be nefarious actors in the private sector in that... Talk about Thomas Sewell and con- con- conflict divisions, right? You, the people who are on the same side of the aisle for seemingly different reasons always find them familiar faces, right? Now, if you have these, these actors and these things and they've now formulated you and they put you into these boxes and they advertise to you and they feed you information, they feed you news stories, they feed you things in with AI... How much do you think that you can be shaped by these, that by the downloading of your information, and maybe these people become silos, and that's why you see so much homogeneity in, in people's thoughts as as today goes. Well, you know, I think a lot, and, and you're right. We just have a different view of it when it's the government. If it, just like you said, if the government runs a library and the government wants to look at the books I've checked out. A lot of people had a problem with that when the Patriot Act was signed. Like it was a big intrusion of privacy. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah. it's because they thought it's, it's the great. government. But anybody who at Barnes and Noble has one of those accounts and you know it, what they're buying is logged, they're keeping track of that. I think they are. Most companies do. I mean, supermarkets, one of the reasons they have those little cards where you get a percentage off is they can give, they can send you coupons tailored to what you eat and drink. Mm-hmm. The bookstore can send you promotional items on the tight you know they see that you read brad thor books and they're pretty sure you're going to want the new one so all of a sudden right before the book comes out you get an email with 10 percent off that book um again with private companies people don't seem to have you know a- as much of a problem with it um but again this uh this this data we have all become you know you have your your physical identity and you really have a digital identity and a digital footprint and the way that companies can get that on you and basically, you know, sell it to other companies so that they can try to focus their advertising or focus their promotions or whatever the case may be. Yeah, we are all little information centers walking around. And it's probably amazing if you took all of these private commercial entities and put all the information together. They all got in a room and brought it in and said, well, this is what I know about Mark Carroll. This is what I know about Mark Carroll. It'd be amazing if the little tidbits that I leave behind as I join these clubs or what I shop for at Costco or what books I buy from Barnes & Noble, how much they could find out about my life. Yeah, or how much predictive nature they could have about it. That's, I think, if we put on our tinfoil hat, Mark, go, go, let's make our tinfoil hats. Let's put them on. Absolutely. All right, now let's, pretend, let's pretend we're making a, the next Bond film, right? We're making the villain. 
and the villain is using this metadata. And let's say that he has a war or he has a cause or he has something that he wants, the bad guy, right? He wants. Do you think it would be possible to have such a good amount of data and such a predictive nature of what you like, what you would, you, what you, you know, I've, I've even heard that they, um, social media has a way to see where your eyes dart as you're scrolling through the media and how long your eyes actually look at a picture and where on the picture it's attracted to. It's reading your eyes as you scroll through these things. I mean, that's that's an insane amount of data that they're collecting from you. Now, could they use that to shape how you think in the future? I mean, maybe you don't even realize it. Maybe you don't even realize. And I think that may be happening even today is that you don't even realize that your views are being shaped by what you're download be not just downloading into, but what you're being fed because they have such a predictive nature about how you react, what you react, what you like, what you click on, what you look at. Now, I'm a Bond villain, and I would, I've got my big, bad, whatever that I'm trying to get through. Do you think that, that could be part of the plot with that? Um, they're actually just manipulating society as a whole by feeding the information that they know, even though if it, whether true or not, then you'll know you respond to it. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of an extension of disinformation, which has been used you know, for years in different ways. Um, you know, they always said that the news doesn't tell you what to think. Uh, to some degree, it's starting to more and more, or at least trying to. But it tells you what to think about, right? You might have strong views about something, and the news article that you read may not uh, actually sway your view, but it gets you thinking about the topic. Mm-hmm. And so you focus on that topic, and that's what they always said is the news may not tell you what to think, but it tells you what to think about. It focuses you on certain subjects. And, of course, our news right now is very polarizing um, it's just the manner in which they want the, it's the crossfire model. I can honestly say I used to do a lot of TV and I would get something that was kind of a complex legal question and they want you to boil it down and you'd get a call and they'd tell you something that had a lot of nuance to it. And they'd say, are you for it or against it? And I'd say, well, it's not really a for or against. I mean, this part of it. And they would, all they wanted was, are you for or against it? We want somebody pro and somebody con even when it's a nuanced issue, that it's not a yes or no. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the frustrating reasons, because you couldn't say I'm for it or against it. It's a legal issue or it's a privacy issue that has nuance. I think that that type of reporting and the, and the way that you self-fulfilling prophecy have almost picked the viewpoint you want by what you log into, whether you log into MSNBC or Newsmax, pretty much the advertisers are focused on the group of people that they think are watching and obviously, they're trying to preach to that choir and really try to reinforce the type of information, the type of news that'll keep you coming back. And whether that's because it's trying to make you afraid of something or trying to make you angry about something, usually there's a viewpoint nexus to almost all media today. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea with the loss of nuance, right? I mean, they it, and I think it comes with bumper sticker mentality. We used to call it bumper sticker mentality, but. It's, it's even gotten worse now where you try to boil down an issue into something, catch a little tagline. Or, are you for or against the war? Yes or no. Well, are you for or against your, your son or daughter going to war and losing their life? Whole different thing. You know, it's easier to bump down these bumper stickers and, and that to very complex issues. You know, put the, put the Ukraine flag in your bio and say you're for Ukraine. Well, there's probably nuance to everything that's going on. And with the information and download that's happening... You know, I'm even guilty of it myself. I usually don't. I I try to seek out opposing information, but it's also hard. I'm not going to listen to a podcast or or an information or news channel that's completely saying things that I completely disagree with. So I know I'm guilty of it myself. 
and with how good I think this metadata is going to become, uh, I have to make sure that I break away sometimes and seek this out because I know I'm getting fed on my feed over and over and over again the same thing. Or if I still get somebody else's feed, they're getting something completely different than I am. Um, so what do you think? What do you think we should do to combat this, or what do you think we should do to curb this, or is there a way? Is it just too late to uh, to curb this kind of um, you know, feeding, spoon feeding what people think you should have. Well, you know, it's one of those things that people, they seek out what they want and, and the, the media wants a predictive thing. There's no such thing as just people calling in with comments anymore, right? You watch a show on, I don't know, C-SPAN and uh, somewhere else. And it actually has three lines, right? Republican, Democrat, or independent, or conservative liberal or something else you know libertarian or something and they actually want you to call a different number based on your predictive viewpoint on the issue so they know when it's coming in what they think you're going to say right yeah. i mean they want to put now part of that is they want to put a varied panel on they don't just want it to be the, you know one thing as far as what we can do the fourth amendment really is going to be hard pressed to protect information in some ways that people hand over to a private entity, right? I mean, you know, you give it up to that entity, you enter it in, you send the email, you put it up on Facebook, you've agreed to the terms of service. The bigger question is going to be what level of service, and when I say service here, I'm talking not about like the service from the company, but legal service. What level of legal service is it going to re require for the government to get that information from the commercial entity hmm. or purchase it from the entity? And what I mean is, you could pass a law, and even though this wouldn't be commanded by the Fourth Amendment itself constitutionally, it'd be a statutory protection, you could pass a law that certain types of information can't be handed over to a company without a judicial warrant. You could actually just make it a law that it could not be accessed with a subpoena or letterhead or whatever the case may be. Statutory protections are probably where privacy is going to go when it comes to stuff that people turn over willingly and even agree in contract that the company can have. Um, I think probably statutory um, enactments are going to be more effective in some ways than court cases and precedent. And again, this is what happened with third party information back in the day when they had a pure Fourth Amendment issue and it went to court. The courts pretty much said, no, your health records, your financial records, they are you gave them up to third parties. And then they have HIPAA or then they put in a Title Three, the Omnibus Act or whatever the case may be. They say no. Even if it's not protected under the Fourth Amendment, even if it's not a search and you don't have an expectation of privacy or property interest, we're going to set up a statutory construct to protect it. My guess is we're going to see more and more privacy in the technology age stemming from statute than from court precedent. Hmm. Yeah. And do you think there would be something where, um, you know, the autonomy of, of these private actors will be free of government interference too? Like, hey, hey, you know, we see, you saw it a little bit before where I'd really like you to, I'm not telling you to, but I'd really like it if you press this one issue more or you kind of um, cl close the bandwidth on some other issues. Uh, do you think that, I think that stuff like that needs to be also prosecuted or at least curbed to a great deal. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's right to some degree. There's always going to be a tension with like the news media. And of course, you know, transparency, outright transparency um, can have limitations, too. For instance, if the media wouldn't have laid off certain issues, the Cuban Missile Crisis would not have been successful. 
Mm-hmm. Like today, I don't think the Cuban Missile Crisis is successful because the media would not hold the story that they were basically practicing to get the blockade out. And that's a simplified version. But basically, the government said to the editors, hey, you know, just as an American, we need you to hold this until we can get this thing in place. And I don't know that anybody would do that now because it's not just getting it on the network news, you know, with a three hour time difference in those considerations. It's, you know, clickbait. Everybody wants it up. Um, we just had a verdict in a big case down in South Carolina, not we, but it just came out. And I mean, everybody rushed to get the information up as far as whether they'll really try to move it in a certain direction. Anytime that information becomes a commodity, um, and which it is now, there's going to be a try, you know, somebody with some interest in the bias in that information will get involved there and companies will try to shape what goes out. And I think we, you know, see that if somebody gets banned from Twitter or somebody, you know, everybody says something about you can't ban somebody from Twitter or First Amendment. It's not the First Amendment. Twitter's a private company. They have their own First Amendment. Yeah, that's why every drugstore doesn't have to sell pornography, for instance. They can make their own decisions on what they sell. Twitter has every right as a platform to, you know, unless they're receiving federal funding, they have every right to just we don't like this person and we don't want them on our platform. They need to go get their own platform. Mm -hmm. That's okay with a private company, but people, a lot of people sense and find say the first amendment issue or fourth amendment issue when there's no real government involvement. And I think the lines have really gotten blurred where people are sort of forgetting the fact that so much of what we have is not in the government's hands. Government wants to use it, but the government didn't collect it. And if the government didn't collect it, it might not be a search in the same way if a commercial data goes to the government versus the government collecting it initially. Do you think that places like Twitter would ever become like public places of accommodation in the fact that they're so used for the share of information and that they almost act as a, as a public forum in that regard? Or do you think they're still going to try to keep their uh, private privatization? It could, you know, they could become a public forum where they start to restrict what they can and cannot, um, you know, not handle. They could pass a law, you know, theoretically. I mean, if you have a business, you can't decide not to let certain folks in mm-hmm. based on their viewpoint or whatever. And, and I guess they could decide that Twitter is a public forum and they can't discriminate. Um, you know, obviously, Twitter and these companies are so big that big tech is going to lobby against that bat. Yeah. But of course it might be the courts that do it. I think we could get there where something is so ubiquitous like Twitter or, you know, Facebook that people, um, you know, the, the government starts to say, Hey, you can't do this or you can't do this. But then again, we're protect we're trying to protect our privacy through government regulation. But of course we're just talking about more government regulation. So it's a slippery slope either way. I yeah. mean, and who we determines things we the, don't want we don't want the company to be able to do what they want to do so we're going to have the government regulate the company but then the government may have more control over that information so it's a slippery slope either, either way you know this technology stuff and the last say from 2002 or 5 somewhere in there where we really started deciding you know is technology or computers different are they special you know are they just containers of ones and zeros or are they you know, there's totally something different. Are we going to be able to pigeonhole technology into the existing brick and mortar, you know, doctrines, or are we going to have to come up with 
completely new doctrines for technology and and we're working our way through that now and it's one of the judi- you know and in the judicial sense it's one of the the questions of our time yeah absolutely and who becomes the purveyors of truth right who who says what it is who is that well mark i want to tell you thank you so much for doing this it's been a pleasure last question i got to ask you all right and this is the important question i need you to think i need to really think hard about this question okay now if you, i will do it if you i'm pondering if you could have ultimate surveillance over any Bond girl, who are you taking the ultimate surveillance of? Wow. Um, I think Maude Adams. Ooh, I think if I nice. just had ultimate surveillance, that's where I would go. Um, yeah, I, I think that's where I would go. It's, it's probably not the most common pick, but I think that's where I would go. Of course, I'm sitting here just trying to click through all the different... Um, you know, and I don't know if... Was she really a Bond girl? Well, she was you know, too. She's guys too. She's octopusy. I mean, what a great. I yeah. Mean, what a, what a great. Yeah, one. I guess it's a great pick. Yeah, yeah. I, I go for it because of the two, but you know, there was almost more of a little bit of an equality in I, definitely in the first one in octopusy. I don't know Bond girl. I don't know if she really played that role. But if the question's just if I'm going to intrude upon someone's privacy <laughs> and have outright surveillance <laughs> of anyone, I guess because of the two movies, I'll go with Maude Adams. All right, that. That's a fantastic pick, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, Mark Harold. If you get a chance, I'll also put the link in the uh, in the bio. Out of the blue, fantastic book. It's on Amazon. Um, and uh, Mark, this is a great time as always. And uh, thanks for having. Thanks for coming on. Uh, absolutely. Thank you, my friend. All right. Have a good night. You too. If you like what you saw, then hit that subscribe button. Comment down below and leave a like in the. And hit that subscribe button. Why are you not hitting that subscribe button? Hit that subscribe button.